Since late August, we have been in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in a series entitled God's New People. And our focus has been on the, the wonder of the gospel and the glory of the church and God's plan for the ages. And so far, we've covered about the first four and a half chapters in that letter. We've got three more sections to complete our journey. And I hope that you've been blessed and you've been challenged by the exploration that we have been in. Today we're going to take a slight detour from the flow of Ephesians, though I think the theme of what we're looking at today is very much part of the application of what Paul has been talking about in the last couple of weeks here at Grace. In other words, it's not foreign to what he's speaking of when he tells us that we are not people of this world, we're to be people who live for Jesus Christ in this world. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, you can turn there, although we'll be mostly in other parts of the scriptures, especially the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and one of our uh, hosts or hostesses will give you one there. Again, we're going to be in a number of different places, so you can either have nimble fingers or follow along well on the screens. Ephesians 4, 17 speaks of the fact that we live differently than the world around us and we live differently than we used to before we knew Jesus Christ. That because our hearts are different, we live differently. And naturally the question is, okay, what does that look like? And Paul begins then in chapter 4, verse 25, laying out in grand detail what that looks like. In our speech and conduct, uh, the first two weeks ago, the second, Pastor Zach uh, overviewed masterfully last week in terms of our conduct. In the coming weeks, if you look at the end of Ephesians, we're going to be looking at transformed living in our marriages, our families, our workplaces. We're going to be seeing what it means to live out that calling in the midst of an unseen world. See, not all that we experience is what we see with our senses. There's a world beyond our senses that is every bit as important, if not more. But what about society? What about how we live in our communities, in our extended society? What does it mean to live as followers of Jesus in this specific society? Paul doesn't specifically address that in Ephesians, but he certainly does elsewhere. And that is our topic today. Believers in society in a specific country. And that that refers to issues of citizenship, issues of government, Issues of politics, issues that are close to our lives. What does it look like at the end of 22 in the United States to represent Jesus Christ? We're going to look at some application of biblical teaching today. And I hope that it's not just for the end of 2022 here, but these are principles, truths from the scripture that transcend one location or one time in our history. You might ask, why this topic? Why now? It must be obvious to many of you. Here's what one uh, scholar wrote. Midterm elections are around the corner. For many pastors, this is a time of year that brings up fear and dismay. That may have never occurred to you. He's right. A pastor recently told me a congregant came up to him to say he couldn't stay at the church because he had different political views. Anybody heard that before? I heard another story of an elder team that was divided over how to address cultural issues. I heard still of another story of a pastor who left his church because the political division was overwhelming. Most of you know similar stories. Patrick Shiner writes, the politics pandemic has hit the church in a unique way in the last six years. You've surely heard this statement. 
recently and before. This election is the most important election in your lifetime. Anybody heard that? Raise your hand. Many, many times. I started voting for the first time back in 1990. And if my math is correct, that's 16 presidential or midterm elections. I voted, I believe, in all of them. And every last one of them, I was told this is the most important election of your lifetime. Let me tell you a little secret. Every election can't be the most important election in your lifetime. I can't even tell you which of my 16 has been. But let's face it, it's in the interest of the loudest voices to make you think that this coming election is the end-all, be-all, cure-all. But that can't be true. Today we're going to find out or be reminded of why. And more broadly, we're going to look at what it means to be followers of Jesus in the place God has called us to in the early 2020s in the United States of America. What does it mean to walk worthy of Jesus Christ as residents, citizens of the United States of even this state, Ohio? And how should we think about politics and government and elections? I need to say from the outset that my desire is not to unleash some kind of screed or rebuke of you today. It's not to champion a party or a candidate. It's not to anticipate or predict some kind of vast change or great improvement in our culture. I don't want to be an idealist today, and I don't want to be a cynic today, because I'm neither. I want to give, my aim is to give guidance today from the authority of the scriptures and from our collective experience on how we live out our role as citizens, residents of this country. I want to organize our journey around eight biblical truths, and you see them in your outline. I hope that you picked up an outline on your way in. If not, you can follow along electronically, graceplayers.org slash program, and you can follow along as we look at how we live out our role as earthly citizens while we are followers of Jesus Christ, how we seek gospel opportunities and how we live in a fallen world, topics like these. And my prayer is that these will guide us, not just for the coming few days, but for the coming months and years. Because the fact is that many people, many believers, have not thought deeply about what it means to be a follower of Jesus living in a current cultural moment. What does that mean for us as citizens? I hope this can benefit us along the way. First point, know who you are in Christ. Again, we're going to be several places in the scripture so you can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. One of the foundational teachings of the New Testament is that a follower of Jesus Christ who's been saved by the grace of God alone through faith alone on account of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone is a new person. Not an improved person, not a better version, not a remodeled individual. They are a fundamentally new person. In terms of identity, the New Testament doesn't speak of spiritual evolution, but of spiritual revolution. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. A completely 
new identity. It's impossible to overstate the importance, the impact of this for how we view ourselves in this present world. It is true that we share a common humanity with everyone around us. It is true that we share a common presence in the midst of a fallen world. But we who know Jesus are not like those who do not in terms of identity. And the Bible tells us that we're not to think or act or speak like they do. Why? Because we are new. In fact, in Ephesians 4 and 5, that has been Paul's grand exhortation in our relationships, in our families, in our communities, in our culture. We act as new people because we are. Paul's not the only New Testament writer to emphasize this. He joins a choir of others. Peter, for instance, in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout, and then he lists a number of places. He speaks there of the work of the triune God in salvation, but, but perhaps his most important point for our purposes today is that he says, you are exiles scattered temporarily on this earth. Another way to say that is, this world is not your home. You've been given a different identity from God. The Apostle John writes something similar. In fact, he quotes Jesus at the end of the high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 14 says this. Jesus does. I have given them your word, his disciples, and the world has hated them. For they are not of this world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. You and I, if we know Jesus, are part of the church of Jesus Christ. You and I are part of a kingdom of priests representing a holy nation. We are a family of God, the family of God, which means we're different. Far too many believers deep down view themselves and our world no differently than those who don't know Christ. Those who have not experienced his salvation. They see themselves as really no different than anyone else, except that they, by the grace of God, ha have gotten a get-out-of-hell-free card, and that's the only difference. That's a tragedy. You may be a sinner saved by grace, but you're also a saint shaped by grace. And that's just as important. The grace of God has made you a whole new creation, and that affects how you live, and in a good way, it colors how you view your perspective on our culture, on politics, on hope for the future. You're new. Know who you are in Christ. Number two, pray to our good Father. When Jesus entered this world in flesh and blood, he introduced a, a new personal language about God that was shocking, scandalous, foreign to those around him. He spoke of God not only as the, the almighty in power, but also as our good father. In fact, when Jesus prayed, he would pray again and again to my father. 
He taught his followers in the Lord's Prayer, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus introduced a kind of personal intimacy about God to the Jews in a way that they couldn't fathom. Paul picks up on that. He says, for those who are children of God through Jesus Christ, we can address God now as Abba, as Dad, as Papa. Not a term of disrespect, but a term of endearment, a term of trust. The New Testament teaches that we can now do that because that is who God is. He is our Father if we know him through Jesus Christ. And that means when we experience the brokenness and the evil and the fallenness of our world, that trust in God should shape our minds. One of the sobering contrasts for too many believers is how much we rant and complain about a sinful, broken society and how little we pray for those who are tasked to lead us. But God calls us to be frequent, fervent prayers for those in authority. Just like you heard our elders pray here, that should be the practice, the habit of our lives. Why? Because God put them there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and following say this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, and who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. I'll stop there. You and I are commanded to pray for our leaders, not conditioned on what we think of them. The good ones I'll pray for. The bad ones, ha, they're on their own. No. Paul writes that we owe it to our leaders in our country, in our government, to pray sincerely for them. But what's shocking about what Paul says here is not the directive of our prayers, but the content of them. We may pray for those leaders. God give them courage and humility and wisdom and repentance and a sense of justice. But what's shocking about what Paul writes here is the effect it's supposed to have on us. Look there. As a result, we pray that we would live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why? Because as we've heard, God is a God of peace. Praying for our leaders is supposed to transform how we live. That we're people of calm, that we're people of kindness, that we're people of righteousness, and on it goes. Paul anticipates that the more we pray for them the more God changes us. Which begs the question, of course, do you see God changing you? Are, are you praying for them? Do you expect God to work? Pray to our good Father. Number three, listen to your neighbors and enemies. Maybe they're the same. I'm going to differentiate here. You know, political tension and conflict was the norm in Jesus' life. Let me say that again. Political tension and conflict was the norm in Jesus' time. So what we experience in our current times is not new. 
often, you've heard it, I've heard it, we've said it in our cultural discourse, in our personal conversations. We're prone to think that this is the first time ever in world history in which we faced evil and cultural resistance and moral decay and the like. Here's the problem. That would be news to most of history and to most of our world. Compared to most of our world in history, you and I still have it really good. Jesus experienced that as well, that pushback, that blowback. And into that context of challenge, Jesus spoke. He preached, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You remember there were the Beatitudes and then the repetition of you have heard it said, but I say to you. And at the very end of that, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and following, Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your neighbor, of course. That was taught in the Old Testament. Hating your enemy, that was assumed. That's what you do with enemies, right? So what was new was what Jesus said to love your enemies, which made his disciples then and now say, why in the world would we love our enemies? And how do we do that? I would have loved to have heard the disciples gathered around. Did you hear that? What? What on earth is he thinking? They knew pushback firsthand. Those disciples who followed Jesus had real enemies. People who resented them and persecuted them and even wanted them dead, we find out. 18 years ago, I took our oldest daughter, Hannah, to kindergarten every day. It was a 20-minute subway ride in Berlin. And on the subway, we watched people. That was before cell phones, so people actually had to look at each other and pretend they knew what they were doing. We, uh, we read books, we talked about school, and we prayed. And there was a girl in Hannah's class that Hannah thought really had it out for her. Katrin was, was mean in Hannah's mind. And Hannah, five years old, wanted to push back, talk back, get, get back at her. But for weeks in a row, when she would talk about this girl in her class named Katrin, I reminded her of what Jesus said in these verses. My paraphrase was this. Be kind to those who don't like you and pray for those who are mean to you. Now that computes, doesn't it? She may not remember it, but I do. And I realized then and still do now that that doesn't change when you're not 5 but 15 or 25 or 45 or 75. In fact, it becomes harder, perhaps, when we recognize that those who are mean to us are diametrically opposed to who we are and what we believe. This is a lightweight, easy teaching from Jesus. Russell Moore said, let's remember, the Sermon on the Mount was delivered not in Mayberry, but in Roman-occupied territory. A collaborator with a literally pagan, sexually libertine empire was seated on the throne of David. Crosses lined the road for those who would dissent. And Jesus was speaking to those he knew would be arrested or tortured or killed. It's hard to get more hostile than crucifixion. This wasn't just some nice concept or naive idea. Loving your enemies, Jesus knew, would cost his followers greatly. And it would require of us humility and sacrifice and courage. 
What does that look like in our 2022 context? Well, I think more than anything, one of the best demonstrations of loving our enemies is our willingness to listen sincerely to them. We don't see much of this in our world. Watch a panel or debate now, especially on TV. How often do you hear one of the people defer to another or to say, I'm curious what you think about that? Or to say, you make a really good point. I don't hear it much. Everyone talks louder and shouts at each other. The motto is, if at first you don't convince, talk more, shout louder. But as we saw at the end of Ephesians 4, there's a correlation between anger and lots of speech. Here's what God says through James. James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Every once in a while, I think it would be great if all discussion and debate took place in German. Not because German's not, uh, not because German's a better, easier language to speak. It's not. But because in many cases, the way German's constructed, the verbs come at the end. So you have to wait until somebody has made their whole point to find out what they're talking about. <laughs> that would be good for us. It'd make us pause. It's harder to interrupt when you don't know what they're saying. In all seriousness, Jesus' followers should be marked by being better listeners. Why? Because we're people who are learning to think not only about our interests, our opinions, but also the interests, the opinions of others. What about you? Do the people around you, in your household, in your family, in your contacts, online, do they think of you as a good listener? That you're willing to hear them out and to pause before you give your thoughts. Do you frequently interrupt people and run over people? Do others find that you value their thoughts even if you disagree with them? Or are you condescending and overbearing? See, in a culture in which volume and domination and insult are the norm, we stand out just in the way we talk and especially the way we listen. Loving people well by listening not only builds up the body of Christ, it's also a witness to the Christ. Number four, vote your conscience before Jesus. Some of you hear that and go, finally, he's going to tell us how to vote. No, I'm not. I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> Matthew chapter 22, you know the story. Jesus encounters religious leaders. They say to him around verse 17, tell us then, what's your opinion, Jesus? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. I want to highlight two things related here to our citizenship. First of all, we who know Jesus Christ are citizens of two kingdoms, an earthly kingdom or country and a heavenly kingdom and king. And they're not 
equal. They're not even close. The earthly kingdom is flawed and is temporary. The heavenly kingdom has a perfect ruler and is forever. Way back in church history, Augustine wrote about this when he referred to the city of God and the city of man. Martin Luther, not quite as long ago, talked about a a, a two-kingdom theology, that we were actually citizens of both, but we had to navigate our obligations to both and to seize opportunities. But he said, and he said rightly because it's biblical, that our priority is the city of God, the eternal kingdom of his Christ. In other words, that at our root, this world is not our home, and this country does not deserve our ultimate allegiance. I didn't say it doesn't deserve any allegiance. I said it doesn't deserve our ultimate allegiance. And Christians need to think hard about that. Second thing I want to say here is that in our country, we're given the opportunity to vote. That was prayed earlier. And that's a privilege that God in his grace has given to us in the history of our country. Many have fought to protect that right, and I rejoice in that. And so I would urge believers to vote. I think it's part of how we do good and foster what's best. I think it's part of how we love our neighbor in a sense. But I think it goes too far to say that followers of Jesus must vote. I don't think the Bible binds our conscience in that way. But I do think there's good reason to say that we can and maybe to urge one another to do so. And that's true even this week. How should we vote? Let me give you a couple of important factors for you to consider as you mark boxes and check names. Number one, does this person stand for the dignity and value of each person made in God's image? That really matters. Number two, does this person recognize the biblical importance of the family and the limited role of government? That's important. Number three, is this person marked by wisdom and integrity and honesty? That they seek the good of others. That's important. Number four, does this person recognize the stewardship and the service of the role? They don't lord it over. They serve you and me. That's how it works in our country. Number five, do they relate to others in a way that's persuasive and compelling? In other words, can they win others over to their good plan? Or do they just repel people? These are important things to think of. And for many of us sitting here, we say, oh, we probably should do some homework in the next couple days so we know what we're doing. Vote your conscience before Jesus. Number five, trust in the sovereignty of God. Followers of Jesus weigh governance and weigh politics as both more important and less important than those around us. We weigh it in a sense as more important because it's part of love for neighbor that we want government to act well, to affirm the dignity of people, to do justice for all. See, government and policies are not just for my selfish good, but they're for the good of those around me. That's true in law enforcement. That's true in economics. That's true in freedoms and rights. These are important for me and for them. Politics matters because those in authority matter. We heard that. We read that here. Romans 13, chapter 1. Paul writes, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, 
For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what is right, but for those who do what is wrong. You want to be free free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what's right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, then be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. So we value those in authority and their role. At the same time, we, we weigh politics less than others. We don't put our, our hope in political change like others do. We don't, we don't express political despair like others, or we shouldn't. Our expectation for governance and politics and change is limited. At least I hope it is. During our decade of living in Germany, it was instructive in many ways for us. It was also sobering. Here's an example of that. During our years there, we found Europeans, maybe Germans in particular, to put far more emphasis on government and politics than we ever remember was the case back in our home country. So there was this elation or despair at every election. And why not? Because where else, to whom else would they look for change in their fortunes, their freedoms, their finances, their safety? See, if God doesn't exist or if God is irrelevant, then where else do you turn? I didn't recall that in the late 2000s in the U.S. Today, I sense it frequently in our country. One of the most disappointing realities for me as a pastor is to observe other believers, sometimes in our church, who are consumed by politics or outraged by them. Friends, we need to remember that God is sovereign and he's totally in control. Do you believe that? Totally. Daniel was asked to interpret a vision for King Nebuchadnezzar during the night We read in Daniel 2, the mystery was revealed to him in a vision. Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells in him. God is in control. On the Sunday before another election in the United States, I challenge you, do you believe that? God knows what he's doing. No mistakes are going to happen that are going to leave God scratching his head going, what do I do now? God's not intimidated or worried, and you shouldn't be either. Kevin DeYoung says, and that makes a difference in what we think about our culture. We could win the culture war and still lose what really matters. Which is another way of saying the church And its message of Christ crucified and risen for sinners is ultimately more important than the culture. Do you believe that? Six, live in the transformation of the spirit. You and I, if we know Jesus, have the privilege of sharing the hope that we have in him. Of giving verbal witness to who he is and what he's done. 
And maybe the best evidence as we do that is the change in our own lives. Not necessarily in whether we're convincing in terms of political arguments. Let me give you a little secret here. Rarely have I met someone who was persuaded into following a radically different political perspective. Never have I met someone who was persuaded to follow Jesus Christ because of a believer's expressed political views. And if you know of an example, I'd love to hear it. I've never heard that. The road to Jesus almost never travels through politics. Often the road away from Jesus travels through politics. Not that that lets them off the hook. They're responsible for what they do with Jesus. They'll give an account. Not that we should avoid politics because they matter. We should be informed. We should be involved. I'm thankful for good friends of mine who serve in government and serve you and me well with the kind of things I mentioned before. Here's what it means, though. It means that we should be circumspect in how much attention we give to political and cultural issues. How much of our time, how much of our conversation, how much of our prayers, how much of our hope. See, politics exacts a terrible cost on us when we give it undue importance. And it hurts more than just me. I can't say it better than this. Christians who push their excessive political party priorities in a disparaging manner do damage their reputation as believers and to the gospel. It's important that we live and speak with integrity. It's important that people realize that the spirit of God animates us, not the temporal issues of this world. It's important that we align our views to Jesus. A little preview of what's to come next week in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Paul writes, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. See, when people see the Spirit of God transforming us, it has a lasting impact beyond the issues of the day. Number seven, witness to the hope of the gospel. All of us have things that we're passionate about, that we are convinced of, that we want to celebrate. Some of you sit here today and it's college football. What a day yesterday. The Buckeyes are always top of mind for many. For some people, it's the latest, greatest Netflix series, some, something that you're watching. For others, it's the great technological device or innovation that you've just been made aware of. You can't imagine going back in life without it. For others, it's a hobby you have that, that, that's the highlight of your day, the highlight of your week. We all have things that captivate us, that give us a sense of wonder and of meaning and delight. And what happens? We talk about those things. We cannot self-mute about the things that we think are great. For believers, the life-changing power of the gospel is meant to be that thing. Something we can't be silent on, shouldn't be silent on. 
I'm reminded of that again and again in the New Testament, the book of Acts. For example, Acts chapter 4, verse 18. We read this about some early disciples. Then the religious leaders called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They had had it up to here with this Jesus stuff. But Peter and John replied, verse 19, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Do you hear it? I'm sorry, but your request is impossible. We can't mute ourselves about Jesus. Can that be said about me? Can that be said about you? That we can't shut up about Jesus? When you have opportunity to steer a conversation, introduce a conversation, shape a conversation, what do you choose? A lot of people in our day will go to the tried and true of weather or sports. Some will talk about culture and politics. And, and, and often those topics are fascinating, whether they're good discussions or food fights. But when given the choice, is your consistent choice in those conversations one of those things? Or is it how can I speak the best news ever about Jesus? Even during election week, God gives opportunities. Look, full disclosure, I love a good conversation about current events, about culture, about politics. Some of those conversations are important. We should care about them. We should care about justice and injustice. We should care about good leadership and bad leadership. As Kevin DeYoung rightly writes, we cannot avoid the cultural conflict to which we're called. You and I live in the here and now. Truths about creation are in the crosshairs. Surrender and appeasement are not the way of Christian faithfulness. We can't just check out, we might say. But neither is being a culture warrior if that means giving up on the centrality of Christ crucified or giving up on our own integrity. Fight the good fight and be sure to keep the faith. And a sign of keeping the faith is that the faith is not muted from our lips. Paul was fixated on Jesus and the gospel. Just listen here. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Paul writes, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Later, he says, how then can they call on one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can, they, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And if you know Jesus, friend, you have good feet with good news. Go. At the beginning of that book, Paul says, Romans 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And the gospel will change more lives more radically than any political discussion or leader ever will. 
you believe that? Eighth and finally, rejoice that Jesus is Lord. Well, Tuesday's coming. Good news, bad news. In less than 18 months, you'll get another primary. And in two years, you'll get another election. And there will be all kinds of reasons, again, for you and I to be outraged or optimistic or cynical. The news, to paraphrase Jesus, you will always have with you. But let me make a prediction about these elections. The Messiah for our country is not coming. The true Messiah already came. The devil is not running as an American politician. The true devil is a lot more dangerous. The kingdom will not arrive through Washington, D.C. The kingdom's already peeked through and someday it will be undeniable for the whole world. And the king won't fill the White House. The king will ride a white horse. Much greater. Rejoice that Jesus is Lord. He's the only one. A.J. Svoboda said, Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is that third-party candidate who refuses to run for the offices we've created for him. Jesus is that eternal incumbent who chooses to be enthroned by willingly being dethroned to the tomb of death and hell, only to start a revolution with people after the primaries are finished. His kingdom is not our kingdom. And the establishment, if the establishment isn't worried, then we aren't following him. The Bible tells us what God's already done. The Bible tells us what God's going to do. And what God has done and what he will do is manifestly political. Because there's only one Lord. And his name is Jesus. Paul, same Paul, writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore God exalted him, him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so God calls us in light of that, today, tomorrow, Tuesday, and Wednesday to live the same way because we know the king. Or as Paul would say in Ephesians 4.1, as a prisoner from the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling, that calling that you have received. Let's do that. The Lordship of Christ shapes how believers view and live in our temporal society because King Jesus is eternal. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray to the one who has all power, whose plan is perfect, and who will accomplish that to the T. We live in a society full of brokenness and sin and evil, and but for the grace of God, we would be contributing to that as well without a Savior. But because of your great mercy, you have made us alive in Christ and have seated us with him next to you. And someday all will see. We rejoice in King Jesus and we're grateful that we can trust and live in light of that wonderful truth. We pray this in his name. Amen.